Welcome to Talkless Water, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the world of water with those making waves. My name is Todd Bottler, and I'm your host for Talkless Water. I'm also the principal of Collaborative Water Resolution, which you can find at waterdisputes.org, as well as the editor-in-chief of Texas with Water and the Texas Water Journal. Both publications are free. My guest today is Dr. Michael Hanneman, the Chancellor's Professor and Professor of Environmental and Resource Economics in the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics at the University of California, Berkeley, where he's been on the faculty since 1968. He's also the Julia A. Wrigley Chair of Sustainability in the School of Sustainability in the College of Global Futures at Arizona State University. Michael has a BA from Oxford University in philosophy, politics, and economics, and a master's of science in economics from the London School of Economics, as well as a PhD in economics from the University of Harvard. You're no slacker in terms of your academic credentials, Michael. Well, I put off getting a real job. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Well, welcome, first of all, and thank you for being part of Talkless Water. It's my pleasure, Todd. It's great to be here. So uh, I read a number of your articles, and that's, you know, what led me to contact you. Uh, And uh, I read them during research I'm doing for an organization in Texas called Texas 2036, where I'm taking a look at water markets and, uh, you know, hope to have that study wrapped up and, and available to everybody at the beginning of the year. So... Let's start out, though, Michael, with your background of water. You know, how did you first uh, become interested in water? Well, I grew up in Manchester in England, which, um, in addition to being very wet, was a 19th century water imperialist. So in the 18, around 1870, Manchester, whose population was growing, and uh, it flooded a famous valley in the Lake District um, north um, to expand its water supply. And when I was, I don't know, 10 or something in school, our class was ushered to downtown to Manchester City Hall to see they have a replica of Manchester's water system, including the conveyance. So I was duly impressed. It was uh, a little bit like, I think, um, a Roman schoolboy, you know, from the provinces being taken to Rome to see the imperial buildings. But then um, I wound up uh, at Berkeley uh, having uh, – my dissertation was on measuring the economic damage from water pollution. Ah, okay. Dealing with water but not water supply. But I wound up getting a job at the University of California and – Water is uh, a big deal in California. So I decided to create a course on the economics of water around 1980. And I got completely engrossed. So that's when you uh, really started working with uh, water markets at that time? No, um, I, I started teaching the economics of water. And so water markets were an obvious topic. You know, a, a major feature in the Western states and probably Texas is 
75 or 80 percent of the water is used in agriculture, but agriculture is only a small fraction of the economy. And so, you know, this question of how do we move water uh, to uh, urban uses is always in the background. Uh, uh, But then through uh, chance, um, I got asked to serve as uh, the economic staff for California's Water Rights Agency. Um, And uh, I wound up getting involved in the uh, decision process uh, permitting water transfers from Northern California to Southern California. And that involved about 70 days of hearing. And uh, as a staff member, I sat through the hearings. And when everybody else was done, the staff were allowed to ask questions. A theme of the hearings, uh, particularly from some of the uh, environmental representatives, was the, the need for water transfers. And the water rights, uh, so uh, these were taking, this was the uh, fall of 86. And uh, one theme was that in the drought in 76, 77, the water rights agency had not been accommodating enough with proposed water transfers. And so uh, a number of witnesses, uh, academic colleagues, were chiding the agency for not uh, doing more for water transfers. And they got pushback from uh, uh, other witnesses and from the uh, from the uh, water board itself that there were complications which had blocked these transfers which the sort of advocates of water transfers were unaware of so they were oversimplifying so one example for, uh, was mentioned was there had been uh, a proposed transfer of groundwater in the uh, spring of 1977, in the sort of the height of the drought. And the Water Rights Agency uh, delayed approving it uh, and called for a report on how the transfer would affect the water table in that area. So they wanted a hydrologic study, and that was going to take time, and, and then the drought passed, and that didn't happen. <laughs> There were other things. So the, the point is, these were real-world complications, which, if you thought about them, had legitimacy. In other words, yes, if, if somebody wants to transfer groundwater and the neighbors are concerned that this will uh, severely lower the water table, it's not unreasonable to ask someone to look into that. Right. So that was the striking thing to me. Um, you had advocates of um, water transfers who had a point but were being simplistic. And that's when I first became aware of the underlying complications. And uh, you do a fantastic job of, of pointing out those complications in this article that you recently published, uh, The Problems of Water Markets. And so, you know, I read that and, you know, I, I, I said immediately, okay, well, you know, uh, this research I've been doing you know, over the last nine months, I mean, I mean, this is, you know, finally, I read something that's telling me, you know, I'm on the right trail, because I keep seeing these same things. Uh, And so, uh, to me, it was kind of an aha moment uh, when I read that. And I'm going to ask you some things about it, specifically, but um, I do want to 
go back and 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 touch on something. So, you know, California is what if you look at the state agency, it says about eighty percent of their wa- of your water is going for ag. Texas, you know, what I see here published is like the sixty sixty five percent, something like that, uh, and. So, you know, the discussion is always, you know, pretty much about, well, water being reallocated from agriculture to other uses. And the, you know, the, the kind of the GDP, GDP issue always comes up with that as well. And boy, you know, people are sensitive about that here. Uh, I mean, really sensitive about it. And, you know, I always think, well, it's not, you know, when someone points out that, you know, in... California, 80% of the water is going to 3% of the GDP or something like that. They're really not saying agriculture is not worth it. I mean, that's really not the message. But I think there are a lot of people in the agriculture community who kind of, they, they get cons- really concerned when they hear that. Um, what's your oh, that, No, that, that's understandable. And uh, <laughs> So the agricultural uh, community, the agricultural sector is important, both economically and, and, and socially and also culturally. Uh, this is uh, part of our landscape, part of our history, uh, and, and you want to keep it. In fact, what's happening now with the droughts we're experiencing is really the economic cost of water is rising, both for agriculture and for cities. And the pressure is going to come from affordability because cities can afford uh, to pay much more. And that's going to be the challenge going forward. How do we make water available? And that's why that's why I've been you know so interested in water markets. Uh, but I'll, let, let me just this is kind of I'm jumping forward to something I was going to talk about a little bit later. But you know you you point out in this paper you know there's all sorts of confusion about the terms water marketing water markets and and I see that throughout the literature I've been reading. You know what I'm referring to a water market, I'm really thinking about something that's a, a, you know, a structured closed system like the Edwards Aquifer, but, you know, that it may also, uh, you know, be used by somebody else to describe, you know, a transaction that is not, re- I mean, it's not is a, a, what is it, a, in a really structured market for doing that? I mean, they occur, but it's, you know, I did an interview with, with, uh, a big water attorney here in Texas. And I said, well, what are the, what are the, you know, what do you have to do, you know, to uh, sell or transfer a water right? And he said, well, the first thing is you got to find one of the hydrologists who knows, you know, what's available and who wants water. And then the second is you have to hire a lobbyist. And I said, well, okay, now that, you know, once you get to number two, you know, it's hard to really think of it as a market in a a lot of ways, but you know, the the transactions are, boy, they're complicated and there's so many steps and, uh, you know, and they're happening in non-structured environments that, that, um, you know, have all these issues that you're pointing out in this paper. Yeah, uh, the late great Joe Sachs, you know, uh, the uh, the environmental lawyer who, if there were ever an environment, a Nobel Prize in law, uh, would have uh, won it, and who uh, 
revived the public trust doctrine. But he said a water market, a water market transaction is like a diplomatic negotiation. Right. You have uh, you have the buyer and the seller. You have lots of other parties around who have an interest in that. And so it's not just two parties, it's multiple parties, multiple interests, and it's a diplomatic negotiation. And so I have a complexity. I have a Joe Sachs story. So uh, when I was getting my master's degree, you know, I, I was going to the University of Michigan School of Natural Resources. Well, and like I had on my list, I wanted to take Joe Sachs' course over the law school, and I got there, and he had just left. He yes. just like left the semester before, and I was like, ah. Yes, and wound up at Berkeley to Berkeley's good fortune. Yes. Right. So, um, you know, so let's go ahead and kind of um, dive into s- some of what I was, uh, you know, finding in your article that that I really would like to talk to talk about. So, you know, kind of your your first, you know, opening statement is water marketing and property right reform are intertwined. Water markets are advocated as a solution for water scarcity, but changes in water rights are often required in the scope of water marketing, uh, if the scope of water marketing is to expand. Well, you know, that's the Edwards Aquifer and the Rio Grande situation here in Texas. You know, the, the water rights associated with those systems were, you know, fundamentally changed. Uh, but that is a that is a tough thing to do uh, elsewhere, particularly where you've got um, surface water rights in the West and the, the prior appropriation system. Um, yeah, the water is an entangled resource, and it's entangled at the very least for two big reasons. One is return flows. You know, how I use water, where exactly I apply it will affect downstream flow to some degree. And if you're downstream of me, you care uh, if I make a change and make some change in the return flow. Um, and, And that's the fundamental distinction between water and land. And, uh, you know, you may be my neighbor, you may hate the color of my house or the architecture of my house, but it's like you can look in the other direction, uh, you know, for the, and, and we have building codes, but the interaction between how one piece of land is used versus another, it's regulated. I couldn't put a gas station next to my house. This is a suburban. But we handle those interactions. With water, it's much more complex because of the of return flows. You and I, you are downstream of me, are sharing a resource in a way in which um, uh, if we own two piece, neighboring pieces of land, we don't share. The other difference is people's concern about water as a public resource and how other people use it. You could call it nosiness if you want. That's a somewhat pejorative term. But uh, again, if I'm within a building code, you know, I can build a funny house or paint it a funny color and the city is going to let me do that. But if I um, stockpile water and don't use it because I want to speculate, water, that upsets uh, a lot of other people. And, and so you're in a goldfish bowl when you use water. 
to a degree that's not true with any other resource. And those are the two things. Um, but because of return flows, because of, of the concern, because of the notion that in some sense water is a public resource and the public has an interest in it, those uh, considerations have shaped the law. And the result is the legal property right in reflecting those things has ambiguities and uh, elements that are um, uh, undetermined. And that's what makes transferring a water right much more complicated than transferring any other type of property. So just kind of, you know, stepping away from, you know, prior appropriation, prior appropriation surface water rights, you know, thinking about the Edwards, and I talk about the Edwards a lot because I, you know, spent a lot of time on it. You know, during that litigation, when I was, I was working for uh, Lucius Bunton, the federal judge who had those cases, uh, you know, there was a lot of concern and a lot of discussion about private property rights. And and I kept hearing it over and over again from, from people, uh, you know, uh, if this aquifer is regulated, my private property rights are going to be taken away from me. And I never, I was like, okay, I guess I understand it. Then I wrote it, I thought about it more and I wrote an article called The Little Fish That Roared. And I, I said in there, talk about the founder, right? And I said in there, look, you know, you, you do, there really weren't any private property rights under the rule of capture because somebody could buy a piece of property right next to you and drill a big well and suck out all the water. But now you've got a right from the Edwards Aquifer Authority that you can lease or sell or, or do do whatever. I mean, so there's, to me, there's a lot of emotion that's also in fear wrapped up in, in all this about, you know, people thinking they're going to lose out. You know, there's a, a, a book written by um, actually a writer who lives in California, but who grew up in Colorado. And the title uh, is The Man Who Thought He Owned Water. And that captures the ambiguity. People feel they have or ought to have ownership interests, and it's very understandable why they feel that. And the man in question was the author's father, whom she adored. Uh, but the problem is, you you can have you do have multiple people claiming an interest in water in a way in which you don't with land. You know, I own this parcel, you own the one next to it. You know, if you want to buy this parcel, okay, but you don't have, there's a limit to your interest. And as, as we said, I can't put a gas station uh, on my land, but that's it. But otherwise, I'm allowed latitude. Water is inherently shared. It's, in a way, it's shared for two, uh, for at least two reasons. One, if there's a shortage, if there's drought, all human beings need water to survive. And, and you know, if we're farmers, we need water. So there's that notion. It, we ought to share water in, at a time of shortage with other human beings. And there's the return flow. The fact is that we're drawing from the same stream. And so we're literally interconnected. And that's the tension. We all have an interest for ourselves. We have an interest for other people and for the well-being of other people. And it's we all have interest in this same resource. And uh, so the have to, we have to find a way of combining our interests. And that's the difficulty. So you point out 
in your your paper that you know water marketing really hasn't produced the long term reallocation that that was expected, and that most of the transactions really they're leases, and so they're short term. Uh, but you know, as we you know already you know discuss you know the the, the process associated with water rights and transferring them and you know, is complicated and difficult and is impeding the reallocation part of it. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the situation out there right now with the Colorado river, uh, you know, to me, it's a look at that. And I, and I keep thinking, well, I wonder if, if somehow that crisis is going to result in, in some fundamental change in water rights, at least related to the Colorado River and the Bureau of Reclamation, I mean, similar to what happened with the Evers offer in the Rio Grande, lower Rio Grande, which, you know, they were in a big water crisis, both of them, and they now they have a fundamentally different system. Uh, I'm, you know, wondering, what do you think? Do you, do you think the current crisis is going to really, I mean, lead to maybe something like that? I think Yes. Uh, but that's because the current crisis is so egregious. And what's egregious is not the drought, right? It's said that this is the most severe drought in the Southwest in 1,200 years, and that would be egregious. But what makes the Colorado egregious is they allocated 20 million acre feet, um, thereabouts, when we never had... 20 million acre feet, you know, maybe we had 15. And it's clear <laughs> over the last decades, we've had 13 million acre feet. And going forward, we may have 11 million or nine. And so allocating 20, when you only have 15 or 13 or 11, that's the egregious thing. And that will right. force um, uh, a process of uh, changing the allocation, and um, it requires. Uh, to, well, let me put it this way: one way to change it is you. Well, that's actually the, the crucial difference. One way to change it would be to ramp everybody down, but. Inherent in the allocation was, should I say, equity or politics, dividing the upper and lower basin states equally, and then within the lower basin, sort of dividing on the basis of seniority. I mean, de facto, with California, the oldest user getting the uh, most preferential treatment. That, that's right. The the two at the upper basin is handled differently in the lower basin. Yes. And so sort of shrinking everybody proportionately, I mean, it may be the solution in the end, but it fundamentally breaks things because the elements of seniority and history as the underlying basis for the allocation among the basins and, and particularly within the basins on the states – and you have to break that mold. You have to... More of a correlative rights type of yes. solution as opposed to prior appropriation. Yes, yes. And of course, um, uh, that's very difficult because it's, um, it's difficult for two reasons. The people like California who have the strongest right 
want to retain a stronger right, the same degree of strength relative to the others, and the others aren't enthusiastic. But also, it's kind of a change of mindset. And you still have uh, water managers in the States pounding the table and saying, this is how we've always done things. You know, history, seniority is in our DNA, is in our bloodstream. And that's a cry of pain. I mean, the other answer is, okay, go complain to Mother Nature or adapt, you know, but pounding the table isn't 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 going to work but that's the difficult process we'll go through and that's why i think in the end it will have to lead to doing something different and and unprecedented so taking a step back when you look at uh how that allocation was what it was based on you know when i if i think back to the 20s you know i think wow that was really pretty progressive i mean they based it on stream flow measurements, right? But they just didn't have enough of them. I mean, they had a they had a few years of them or, or decades, and, and it was kind of a wet period for sure, or definitely a wet period. And so when they divide it up, you know, they're, they found out later on, well, there's not nearly this much water um, most of the time. And so I almost feel like, gosh, that's, you know, that's kind of a, a, a almost a case of, you know, trying to use science to manage a river uh, that that comes back and bites you, but because you just didn't have enough data, and so what you thought might have been well, uh, uh, there may have been more to it. So, John ah, okay. uh, Flack and Kuhn wrote uh, the book about three years ago, which argued that the science actually suggested less stream flow. Okay, the implication is they they so they. Depending upon how you look at it, they probably allocated 18 million acre feet. They thought there was kind of 20, but uh, and they allocated 15 million acre feet. But there was always the question of Mexico, and there was always the question of evaporation. And and so one interpretation is they were allocating 18, but they actually thought they had a, a margin because they thought there was 20. But as Fleck and Kuhn point out, there was some uh, hydrologic analysis and reports suggesting 15 was actually what the uh, existing record showed. It was a short record. And uh, so another interpretation is they engaged in some wishful thinking. I mean, uh, dividing up 18 or 20 is easier than dividing up 15. And so they uh, took the uh, easy solution and engaged in wishful thinking. Uh, Let me reframe this in, in another way. The feature of water rights. So it's very interesting to contrast the psychology of managing water in terms of water rights and managing water quality. Water quality really only became an issue after the Clean Water Act in 1972. Water quality is uh, the province of the federal government, water quantity is the province of the states, except on an interstate river. But uh, I've always uh, observed that the psychology is different. So with water quality, uh, you can have a decision 
But it's always a provisional decision. In other words, suppose you set uh, a water quality standard for some pollutant. That's a decision. But if it turns out that the fish don't recover or other things go badly, you have to revisit the standard. You kind of can't say, we set a standard of X parts per million of, you know, whatever. And if the fish don't like it, you know, right. screw them. Water quality, the, the whole ethos is you are preserving a resource. You're the servant or the protector of certain resources. And so you have to tailor what you do you know, to the to the creatures for whom you're acting as trustee. You, you kind of can't just lay down the law and say, well, if the fish die, too bad. You know, 17 parts per million is all they're getting. You have to at least consider doing something different. Water rights is more like an all-out battle. You know, think of a, a, a medieval battle. Mm-hmm. You and I have, uh, we've argued for 50 years. We go before a judge. The judge says, Hanneman, you lose. Todd wins. You know, Todd gets the chunk of water. And that battle is over. Uh, I mean, I, I will be unhappy, but I can't reopen and say, ah, uh, you know, I can't come back two years later and say, now, it, you know, it's not fair. So water rights was a kind of a winner take all, or at least it was a pitched battle. The issue was then resolved. There was no real. Whereas uh, water quality, there could be reopeners because, uh, you know, if circumstances change, you change. That, that mindset of a once and for all determination of a water right works if you have a static hydrology. <laughs> but as we now know with uh, climate change, we have a changing hydrology. And what I'm saying is that is a hard mindset to change, that um, we can't have a once and for all allocation of quantities of water. And for 100 years or more, we sort of um, believed you could. Uh, And so that's part of the difficulty in the adjustment that we're going to have to make. So there's something in in your article that is a little bit different uh, than what we've been discussing so far. But I wanted to talk about it because I, I read it and I was like, ah, yes. I mean, this is the this is a great parallel to something that I've been observing here in Texas. Uh, you talk about the difference between water and electricity. Um, you know that their uh, you know economic characteristics are different. You know. Electricity is helpful. Water is essential. You die without it. Uh, electricity is man-made. Water's uh, natural. Uh, water infrastructure collects and distributes water, but it doesn't generate it. Um, you know, electricity is hard to store, but easy to transport. Water is the complete opposite. Um, and you know, there are a number of other e- elements that are different there. You know, so. You know, now kind of thinking about oil and gas and coming back to Texas, you know, there's a lot of, uh, of, you know, well, let's put it this way. There are, there are folks who have, have made a lot of money and done very well in the oil and gas industry who get involved with water. And, uh, you know, there are differences even there. I mean, you know, it's not electricity, 
but there are more differences, you know, between uh, oil and gas and water than most people might understand. And it leads to some kind of uh, difficult outcomes. And, uh, you know, I just I, I was looking at that and I was thinking, gosh, you know, there's kind of it's sometimes it can be kind of the same problem. You know, the, the folks who might be, uh, you know, very uh familiar with electricity out West. I mean, you know, a lot of these big dams are generating electricity and, you know, really trying to apply a similar model to water. I hear all the time, oh, we need a water grid in the United States. And, you know, we're going to ship it back and forth between the East and West, and it's going to go up and down and, 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 and all that. And I, and I, you know, my eyes glaze over, but um, I'm just, I'm just kind of curious. It, it, you know, it, it's not surprising. It, it, I'll, I'll talk about economists, my own um, view. You know, we tend to um, place a lot of weight on theory uh, and, you know, conceptual ideas and much less on kind of uh, walking around and seeing what happens on the ground. And so it's very natural to see analogies between electricity and water. Uh, you know, uh, just... Uh, to digress for a moment, water was kind of the sexy topic for environment, uh, for economists in the 1960s, 1950s. The field of the economics of water took off in the sort of mid-1950s and flourished for about uh, 15 years. And famous Is that mostly related to... Uh, water quality pollution, or is it? No, it was no, it was before, and and the context was, um, you know, uh, the uh, Flood Control Act is it of 1935 allowed uh, the federal government allowed federal taxpayers' money to be used for flood control, um, as long as the benefits to whomsoever they accrued exceeded the costs, and that opened the gates uh, to cost benefit analysis. It opened the gates to. Uh, uh, federal projects, not all of which were well conceived, but it got the federal government, federal economists doing cost-benefit analysis. And by 1949, there was uh, a feeling that things were out of hand. Uh, Different agencies uh, were doing benefit-cost analyses and should we say of different qualities and 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 so there was uh, the view that the federal government needed to harmonize uh, how it did benefit cost analysis need to produce guidelines for doing benefit cost analysis and that led to an interagency committee that produced a report called the green book on uh, benefit cost analysis that came out in 1950 or 1951 And at that point, the view was economics could do benefit-cost analysis for market commodities, you know, uh, basically calculating profit and loss. It couldn't value what we now call non-market commodities, human life, life and limb, uh, recreation, pollution, those, uh, those things. And the report literally said, you know, these things are important, but economics can't handle them. But that had the ironic effect of interesting a number of economists. Otto Eckstein uh, was an example, John Crutilla, um, who wrote books in the late 50s on the economics of water projects. 
and paved the way. And, and then really it's only a decade later that uh, these concepts are applied to water pollution. So you have a flourishing of, uh, of uh, economics uh, valuing, for example, recreation as uh, a sort of uh, commodity. Well, all that, the other thing, uh, was in the 60s, you had the extension of the California Water Project, I mean, the extension of the central, and and uh, a big debate, uh, Hirschleifer, you know, a, a very great microeconomist, wrote a book, uh, Joe Bain wrote a book, uh, you know, leading figure in industrial organization. And, you know, the theme of this was, rather than uh, building infrastructure, you should use water more efficiently. And so, but the political decisions in 1960 and thereafter were, let's build projects, let's increase supply. And so the air went out of the field of water economics, that balloon. But, and then by the late 60s and 70s, the field of energy uh, economics arose. The French writers on energy, on electricity economics became known. And then from 1970 for the next 30, 40 years, you know, if you were a bright young um, uh, graduate student, energy economics was what you would look at. And uh, so the field of uh, energy economics, you know, grew, is very successful. But here's the point. There's sort of a, 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 a temptation to think, well, water is essentially similar in many uh, uh, respects to electricity. And so the sort of lessons learned for electricity work for water. And the problem is that's an oversimplification. And a new generation of economists interested in water is going to have to learn these differences which have been overlooked. Right, right. So let's let's pivot from that to uh, something uh, about Western states and uh, surface water rights, and uh, you know their their interest in surface water rights, and that this you know just kind of you, you've got this uh, quote in here: the state shall determine in what way the water of the state both surface and groundwater should be developed for the greatest public benefit. That's not Texas because, you know, Texas uh, groundwater is owned uh, by the landowner. But but this this notion uh, having to, to do with surface water rights applies here. And this is the thing that I, I always wonder about. You know, the, these, these very old surface water rights, you know, they're, I mean, and to me, I know that the the theory is that everybody in the state owns surface water, right? But once somebody gets a permit or may have gotten a permit in 1900 from for some surface water right, I mean, gosh, you know, you don't really have, it seems like you have no seat at the table and, and you know, looking at how they're using it, should it still be used that same way? It's almost like, it's almost, I know it's a usufructory right, uh, uh, you know, you don't, it's not actually yours. You've just got the, the right to use it, but boy, it sure is treated as if it is somebody's permanently, even though it's supposed to be the state surface water. And so I'm always a little, you know, uh, concerned that, that, you know, how we, we, we treat surface water rights, um, that 
are, you know, especially older rights and in states that don't have any environmental flow, uh, you know, requirements, any stream flow requirements, et cetera. But, but I, I mean, what do you, what do you think about that? Because I, I that seems like that's gotta be at the crux of, of, of what you're writing about here, especially in the Western United States with prior preparation. There are different ways of looking at this. And this is basically, um, this is a value judgment. It also may be a legal judgment, depending upon what state law codes say, and I'm, I'm not a lawyer. But um, the way I think about this big picture is, in the end, there needs to be a sort of social compact or a social decision. Um, these are uh, these are natural resources, and Mother Nature is changing you know, how she does things, is changing stream flow, is, is changing temperatures and so on. So uh, there are two extreme views. One is, well, we have property rights and, um, <laughs> you know, live with them. So uh, we, we have an interest in preserving ecosystems, you know, that we didn't have 60 years ago. Fine, pony up the money. Uh, you know, we're not changing rights. The other view would be, yes, that's understandable, but it, this is a changed situation in a sense. This is a sort of catastrophe, and we're going to have to do something different. Let me make an analogy. You know, if we have 10 foot of sea rise, if we have 6 foot of sea rise at some point, coastal land is going to become inundated. And uh, so the question is, what do we do? Well, one view is you own coastal land and got flooded, you know, you're out of luck. Another view would be this is a societal problem and we need to help you in some way, giving you, we can't manufacture land, we can give you money to move or something. So this question of whether, you know, nature changed, you're on your own, you're out of luck, versus um, no, the society has some interest in dealing with this. Those are two points of view, and it's becoming obvious, by the way, in the aftermath of Hurricane Ian, that an issue you know like that faces us now. The, the New York Times, I think, uh, yesterday or today, talked about many residents have lost their life savings, won't be, uh, wouldn't be able to get insurance going forward, and and so um, they are. That's permanently changed their lives, and the and and the question is: Do you say, well, that was your bad luck, can't be helped, or you know, or should the state of Florida or the federal government do something to help? It's it's that same uh, tension between um, those uh, two points of view um, uh, going forward with uh, climate change. Um, and, you know, because the water supply is so essential, not only for human life, but for economies, you know, sort of saying, well, people have to, you know, take care of themselves is 
um, it is harder to say. There's another element, I think, which um, is relevant. We talk about uh, water, but there's also the issue of water infrastructure. I mean, and, and this is very much an issue with uh, Indian water rights that I've been involved with. Um, it's not enough to get an allocation of water often. You need uh, infrastructure to convey it, to transport it. And water infrastructure is very difficult to finance. It's capital intensive. It's very long-lived capital. You can't finance it pay as you go because you need you know, the whole infrastructure in place, and that's going to last for 100 years, but you can't deliver a single drop of water. And we, you know, with infrastructure finance, we have a tradition of some sort of societal action. We, we have the, you know, subsidizing federal water projects, subsidizing uh, rural water supply infrastructure, whatever. And so we accept the notion of some sort of public obligation, some sort of obligation for the public to step up to the plate when we're thinking of financing infrastructure or the conversation right now about affordability and, and what this means. Maybe we can kind of harness that to the notion that there is some sort of social obligation and some need for social agreement with regard to the allocation of quantities of water. In other words, if we combine the societal interest in funding infrastructure with the question of should there be a societal interest in allocating water, maybe that will make things a little easier to accept. One of the things that you you and I also talked about when we uh, talked a few weeks ago were uh, had to do with definitions like reasonable use and beneficial use. And so... Um, why don't you why don't you talk about reasonable use? I, I think you know if you're talking about surface water rights in California, I guess you know reasonable use is the the definition that maybe you know changing that a little bit might might help out. Yeah, and let me say uh, going back to uh, Colorado in 1870 1880. Uh, one notion was that people shouldn't speculate, shouldn't be allowed to get a water right just to speculate. Water should be put to use. But uh, another notion was water that has to be put to a reasonable and beneficial use. This whole underlying notion that water is essential, but it's scarce, and we don't want people wasting it, and we don't want people sitting on it and not putting it to use. So uh, there have been elements of the requirement that water has to be put to use. You can't just sit on it. But the use has to be, quote, reasonable and beneficial. Those notions go back to the 19th century. But uh, for the longest time, you had to do something uh, really over the top to be deemed not to be putting water to reasonable use. And a famous example was a farmer uh, who flooded his fields to a depth of, I think, three foot because he wanted to kill gophers. He wanted to drown them, you know, <laughs> drown them dead. Um, and, you know, and that was judged to be a waste of water. But uh, basically, reasonable use meant any any normal use in agriculture or in urban use. 
you know, if you if you look at this as a lexicographer and you ask what does the word reasonable, there would be overtones that what's reasonable depends on the circumstances and could vary with circumstances. That's not how reasonable use was interpreted in water law for a long time. But in the late 60s, there was a ruling in California involving water use in the Napa Valley. And the judge uh, uh, said there that what's reasonable at one point in time could stop being reasonable later on, that, that what's reasonable was relative to the circumstances. And that line of thought is slowly uh, taking hold, slowly, but it, it's, it's taking hold in California. Uh, and given uh, California's uh, very incomplete, very messy water rights, uh, very screwed up water rights, uh, and, and including uh, repeated failures in trying to uh, correct def deficiencies in water rights, I think one way things may evolve is strengthening the definition of reasonable one use. So state agencies, courts may say, okay, in the drought of 2022 or in the drought of 2026, you're using water for that purpose is not reasonable. I mean, if that weren't a drought, it's okay. And so that may become one way of uh regulating water use, but particularly in California in a context where the state has no authority over half of surface water use because it was allocated before 1914, uh, or even uh, regulating groundwater, where it's not clear that anybody really has authority to regulate groundwater. So reasonable use is, I think, a, a compelling notion. I mean, the idea of getting serious about what's reasonable. And it, it, may, it may move forward in a way in which changing water rights uh, remains deadlocked. Whether yeah. that's uh, the, the best course or not, I don't know. But that may be where sort of something gives. So just kind of, you know, thinking about the situation in Texas, you know, the, the, in the definition of beneficial use, uh, you know, you, almost anything is a beneficial use. I know the court case associated with it has a really extreme example and says, yeah, that, but it's still beneficial use. Um, and, uh, you know, we also have cancellation. Uh, water rights rarely are canceled. Um, and... So, I mean, the tools that 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 are available, you know, no one is really wanting to to fully use or explore those. Sometimes, it's so I, you know, I, I, I'm somewhat I'm somewhat uh, you know kind of torn about. Well, if we change, if we make some of these changes, are they really going to result in in uh, what we want, or are you going to continue to have a situation where, well, they're really not being applied um, by the state? And so, uh, you know, how much of a difference is going to be making? But yeah, you see, the crucial problem is that water is not man-made. Now, you can desalinate water, and that is man-made, but it's, it's still very expensive, not only in terms of capital, but also in terms of operating costs. And so as long as 
we can't manufacture water. We depend on water you know, as a society, as an economy. And if uh, water supply is threatened, let's say by climate change, and we can't manufacture additional water, then the question is, you know, isn't there a compelling societal interest in reallocating or changing certain uses or, or you know, taking some sort of action? And that's what makes, you know, water different because at this point it's not effectively, um, uh, it can't be created by human beings. And so it's a limited resource. Well, you know, some of the examples of water markets, you know, they're pretty clearly, they resulted from a crisis and, you know, the situation essentially got to where somebody had to do something. And, you know, I, I hate to to be a pessimist and think that that's where how we're going to roll here. You know, going forward, um, you know, we're just going to have where we're going to make these big changes when the system crashes or, or whatever. You know, however you want to phrase it, but it but often kind of it seems like that. You know, we just go from crisis to crisis. We don't really um, you know think ahead and, and try to uh, you know. Uh, avoid some of these really thorny issues that no one ever really wants to, to, you know, weigh into. No, uh, I mean, these are difficult decisions because uh, they involve consequences that are unpleasant for some or maybe many water users. And so wishful thinking, postponing things in the hope that this goes away, um, you know, it's like sort of postponing surgery. You you sort of hope that the need will go away and you don't have to go. But it it's now become clear last year, this year with the droughts, it's, it's finally dawned on many people, you know, that this is not going to go away. Right. And so that's the sense in which taking these really unpleasant decisions, difficult decisions, is going to be forced on us. And it would be useful, you know, to start thinking about options ahead of time. Uh, Making major decisions in the midst of a full-fledged panic is a terrible idea. People are panicked, uh, also they're preoccupied, they're distracted, and you don't have time to sort through the alternatives. And so it really is incumbent on us to start thinking of pathways to change ahead of time. So, you know, these... This is just an observation based on the, the water markets I'm looking at here. But, uh, you know, I mean, what you, you see is the, the people who have surface water rights who uh, in the Rio Grande, who now have correlative rights uh, in that water market. And the folks who thought they had water rights but really didn't, uh, the rural capture in the Edwards, who now have a groundwater right. I mean, they they do very well. They really benefit financially from that um, once those systems are in place. And I often often kind of wonder, gosh, you know, if there was a way really to better communicate that, you know, we're, we're trying to create a system that, hey, you can, you know, make money and do well and accomplish, you know, these goals 
which are important to everyone else um, in terms of the management of your water. Uh, and uh, I don't know, and I'm probably being too Pollyannish about it, but but I think I think sometimes you know the there's a real there's lots of fear about how you get there. You know, they say, yeah, you might. Okay, that looks good, but I'm afraid I'm I'm not going to get what I think I deserve in water my water rights. You know, as you transition, you create this new system. Um, thoughts on that? Yeah, well, it, it's very um, natural to be used to what you're used to and and want to avoid changes. My wife will tell you. Uh, when we came to Phoenix, we rented a house, which was okay, but it turned out it was only uh, available to rent for a year. And then, then we had to find uh, the house we lived in. And uh, I drove um, my dear wife crazy saying, you know, I'd like something like this house, which we've lived in for a year. We found a very different house and I love it. But, uh, you know, I, I liked what I was used to. And all I'm saying is that's human nature. And some people may do that to a greater degree. And, and I may be one of them. But it's not. But uh, I, so I, uh, there, are, there are two arguments. One is, you know, you'll be better off um, financially um, and in other ways if you make the change. The other argument is fear. You know, this is just not going right. to work. Right. And you're going to be in bad shape if you don't make the change. And I think you need both arguments you, because we're, we're moving to a situation where, where the amount of water we use is unsustainable. Right. And you need, you need an ex, what I call an external forcing mechanism, an EFM. Yes, a judge or exactly. a drought or whatever. You, it would be nice if we could keep doing what we're doing and not change. You know, if if that's my first vote, but at some point that uh, is infeasible. I really enjoyed this, um, and you've been, uh, you know, great to talk to you and patient, and you know, talk to me before, which was really helpful my for my research. So. Um, Michael, why don't you tell us how listeners can find out more about the things you're doing, your work? Well, I've, I have a lot of writing ahead of me. I've, uh, I, I uh, co-edited a special issue of a journal called the Oxford Review of Economic Policy uh, that came out in the beginning of 2020. Um, and I wrote a couple of papers there. Uh, I would like to write uh, a book on the economics of water, actually two books, one for economists and one for lay people. And that's going to take, uh, you know, three years or so. Um, but uh, I would like to find a means of um, uh, uh, communicating both with economists and with non-economists what's going on. Economists don't understand the complexities. Non-economists don't understand the complexities. They also don't understand the economic angles which make water so difficult. And so I think there's really an obligation for, for those of us working on, the, uh, on water, you, me, and, and others, to um, try and educate people. Uh, I mean, not in, in the sense of top down, but educate people to the complexities. Water is much more difficult than any other commodity. And so we need an understanding of the difficulties before we can make progress in finding good solutions.
I wish my wife could hear that last statement. Uh, she is uh, a veteran of the electricity industry. And so I keep telling her this water stuff is a lot more complicated. And she's, I don't know, she's not convinced, but, uh, but I agree with you. So, uh, Hey, Michael, this has been great. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Todd. I've enjoyed talking with you enormously. Thank you. Thank you. So this has been Talk Plus Water. My guest today was Dr. Michael Hanneman, the Chancellor's Professor and Professor of Environmental and Resource Economics in the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics at the University of California, Berkeley. And he is also the Julie A. Wrigley Chair in Sustainability in the School of Sustainability in the College of Global Futures at Arizona State University. I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I also want to give a big thank you to Anna Huff at the Meadows Center for Water and the Environment at Texas State University for getting each episode of Talkless Water ready to roll. My name is Todd Butler. Let's talk water again soon.